1: welcome to true crime garage wherever you are whatever you're doing thanks for listening i'm your host nick and with me as always is a man who claims to have been spit on by keith hernandez here is the captain
2: yeah nice game pretty boy it's good to be seen it's good to see you thanks for listening thanks for telling a friend
1: Today, we are still sipping on Birthday Bomb by the genius beer brewers over at Prairie Artisan Ales. This is a fantastic beer with a birthday party going down right on the label. It's a celebration. It's a festival. It's a delicious imperial stout, double coffee imperial stout if you're nasty. ABV, a bombing 13%. So drink this one at home in your garage. Sound the trumpets, please. As Birthday Bomb is most definitely a 5 out of 5 bottle caps kind of beer and let's give some praise to our good friends right here first up we have a shout to kim
2: and chris in florida a big cheers to nicholas l in parts unknown and
1: here's a double cheers to jan and janae in seattle
2: hey 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 janae and a big we like your jib to deborah in roseville michigan
1: next up here's a cheers to kai and searcy Arkansas, And last but certainly not least, we have Miss Natalie Bones in Seattle, Washington. So thanks to everyone for tuning into today's show. And thank you to everyone who contributed to this week's Beer Fund.
2: Yeah. in Beer Run. For all of our old episodes, check them out wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure you check out our bonus podcast called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium, exclusively on Stitcher Premium. Check that out, and that is enough of the business.
1: All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. On July 22nd, 1993, an employee at the University of California is injured after opening a package that exploded in his kitchen. The package was mailed to his home. This is world-renowned geneticist Dr. Charles Epstein. He was severely injured in the attack. Just two days later, Captain, a prominent computer scientist from Yale University receives a bomb in the mail and lost several fingers when he opened up the package. In December of 1994, a package was received at the home of Thomas Moser in North Caldwell, New Jersey. Thomas Moser was an executive at the public relations firm Burson Marsteller. Thomas opens the package and is killed immediately. Now this is bomb number 15 if you are keeping score at home. Mm -hmm. On April 24th, 1995, a mail bomb was sent to William Dennison at his office. However, Dennison, who the package is addressed to, is actually the former president of the California Forestry Association located in Sacramento. So the new president is the one who actually receives this package. This is Gilbert Murray. He opens the package, and he is killed immediately. So now what we have here, Captain, is two bombs in a row that are both deadly. Our attacker seems to have perfected his craft.
2: Which has to be scary for the FBI because what we know in his previous attacks is not just sending bombs to individuals, but the bombs that he put on the flight, Flight 444, And if that bomb would have went off, we're talking about casualties almost up to 100 people. And so if he's able to then go, hey, well, this is working. Instead of going after single individuals again, I'll go after the airlines again. And if they don't stop it, I mean, you're, you're talking about a massive devastation.
1: Captain, I want to get into some communications that have been going on through the course of this investigation and these attacks. Now, there was a letter that was sent to the San Francisco Examiner in 1985, and I actually have in my notes here that a letter at some point was received by the San Francisco Chronicle as well. I don't have that date in front of me, but one thing interesting to our listeners, they will remember the San Francisco Chronicle from the Zodiac case. That's where he sent most of his communications. Now, in this letter, back from 1985, the author is explaining what FC stands for. So I'll just read the first couple sentences of this letter. And what it says here is that this was a handwritten letter. And it says, To the San Francisco Examiner, the bomb that crippled the right arm of a graduate student in electrical engineering and damaged a computer lab at U of Cal Berkeley last May was planted by a terrorist group called Freedom Club. We are also responsible for some earlier bombing attempts. And it goes on to list some of those attempts, and it also goes on to state how some of the bombs were constructed to try to prove that we are, in fact, who we say we are.
2: Yeah, and then also they... Reminded everybody that the first rule of Freedom Club is to not talk about Freedom Club.
1: As well as the second rule of Freedom Club as well. Now, there was some communication with the New York Times from this same terrorist group that's identifying themselves as Terrorist Group FC in their communications with a Warren Hodge of the New York Times. This letter was in 1995, again explaining just like we said with the previous letter what the group stands for what they're responsible for and descriptions of bombs proving we are who we say we are what's interesting about this scenario with both of these situations with the the letter to the San Francisco newspaper and then the New York Times one thing that the FBI was doing in their investigations was they were able to really pinpoint and determine where the mail bombs that were actually sent through the mail were shipped from where, where someone dropped them into the mail. They found that the majority of the communications, as well as the majority of the bombs that were mailed were mailed in the San Francisco area. So what they believe in their investigation is that they are looking for someone who lives in or around the greater San Francisco area. (laughs) Hmm. Now we have another scenario, and this comes from the 1995 letter to the New York Times. What they see on the letter is indentations, like someone had wrote something on another piece of paper on top of this letter or this envelope that was sent to the New York Times. Through some analysis, they're able to determine what what was written, and it was written, call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. Now the FBI is desperately looking for a Nathan R because they believe that this evidence suggests to them that the Unabomber made a mistake. He accidentally wrote over top of his letter and now they need to find a Nathan R because a Nathan R may have received a call on a Wednesday at 7 PM at some point from the Unabomber who made a note to themselves Call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. They are making a national hunt for everyone named Nathan R. with the last initial, last name initial of R.
2: Yeah, or possibly Nathan R. is connected to this Freedom Club.
1: Their second objective, once they track down every Nathan R. and ask them the simple question of, Do you know who the Unabomber is, or do you who called you on a Wednesday at 7 p.m., so so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, or s- sometimes they ask them to straight up, are you a piece of shit?
1: They thought, you know what? If it's not Nathan last name that starts with R, once we've cleared all them, let's start looking for Nathan middle initial R. Right. The problem with this is there's a lot of Nathan R's out there, first of all, and second of all, not all these guys want to talk to you. You know, you're a law enforcement agency and you're saying, hey, we need to ask you a couple questions. You're going, what are you doing contacting me? I don't know what it is that you're talking about. Get the hell out of here. Especially if you're nowhere near the San Francisco area.
2: I wonder if there was any communication within the FBI to go, well, we have now communication from this FC, Mm -hmm. possibly an individual or a group. All the communication is coming from San Francisco. Our communication with the Zodiac was coming from San, San Francisco. There's now communication between this Unabomber or FC towards uh, newspapers, mm. just like the Zodiac. Is it? I wonder if there was conversation within the agency to go, is this somehow connected to the Zodiac?
1: My guess would be that when you have this many agents working on a case and, and a case that's. Uh, has a span of this many years that you probably have all kinds of speculation and theories, especially early on in the case when you have really no evidence at all of anything going on other than this FC calling card that's being left with each bomb. So remember the communication with Warren Hodge of the New York Times. What we then have are several threatening letters that are sent to Persons that would later be receiving bombs or at least the threat of possibly receiving a bomb. And I'll read one, but there were multiple of these. And this one says, Dear Dr. Roberts, it would be, be-, it would be beneficial to your health to stop your research in genetics. This is a warning from F.C. Warren Hodge of the New York Times can confirm that this note does come from F.C., which is bizarre because this is a complete different approach to some of the attacks later that we're seeing in the 90s compared to what we saw in the late 70s and 80s, where there is, in fact, a communication in advance and a threat that is sent out saying, stop what you're doing, here's our threat, we are FC. And, oh, yeah, this guy, Warren Hodge, he can confirm that we are who we say we are because we've already communicated with him at the New York Times.
2: And what we'll learn later is by the 90s, the mid-90s, that the FBI is going to have a list of about 2,000 suspects.
1: Yes. Um, in April 24, 1995, that was the last deadly bomb that was received. Again, it was at the California Forestry Association. Exactly two months later, on June twenty-fourth, 1995, copies of a three— Copies of a 35,000-word essay titled Industrial Society and Its Future by FC were sent to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Penthouse Magazine.
2: Again, very similar because it's sending to three different publications and then also very similar like what the Zodiac did to say, hey, publish these ciphers, publish this manifesto.
1: Right, and what you have here, Captain, is... Basically, it's this very lengthy manifesto of what the author deems to be the industrial society and the damages that it's doing to our society and to our freedoms and so on and so forth. But also saying, you know, we are FC. We are the Freedom Club. We are this terrorist organization who has been terrorizing America for well over a decade now. Now, if you publish our essay, and I think there was even the words in there, publish or perish, meaning if you don't publish this, we're going to ramp up our attacks and, oh yeah, we've been deadly as of late. We've killed the last two people that we've attempted to kill. Now, we can ramp up these attacks if you don't submit to our demands, which is publishing this essay. Or if you do publish it, Well, we will desist from terrorism if this demand is met. There was, of course, a lot of controversy over the idea, do we give in to this terrorist demand of printing their essay in the papers?
2: I believe it was titled Industrial Society and Its Future.
1: What you end up having happen here is this great debate that is going on behind the scenes. Do we publish or do we not publish? Yeah. And really, what we want to have happen here, the FBI is going to have the final say so. They are going to tell these publications if they can publish or not. However, these things were sent to three different periodicals. So we have the New York Times and the Washington Post that really says that, you know, we are going to go off of the FBI's recommendation.
2: Well and look we we have a debate going on within inside the agency because like we were talking about earlier last week um off the record if you will that they did these uh strategies with the zodiac and never caught him
0: mm-hmm. so
2: the people that are saying hey we need to publish this because this is going to bring other people out to to possibly be able to identify this group or this individual And there's other people coming back and going, hey, it didn't work with Zodiac, so how are you so certain that it's going to work with this Unabomber's manifesto?
1: It didn't work with Zodiac, but the interesting thing is that the majority of the time when these, especially when it's a serial offender, that when they start communicating, the communication is what often leads to their capture. And so you have this, you have this conf- confusion going on of oh we don't give in to terrorist demands but oh this also might be this might be our spearhead for our investigation to finally catching this guy
2: mm-hmm.
1: so the penthouse magazine look they're they're looking to become newsworthy i guess right they're saying okay times they're going to th- defer to the FBI the post is going to defer to the FBI we're going to publish it here at penthouse magazine
2: yeah they said no more with the tatas the titties and the tatas we're going to we're going to go right after the industrial society
1: well they, they were going to continue doing exactly what they were doing but they they knew this thing's going to sell a lot of papers, sell a lot of magazines and so of course they wanted to post it and this is public information. This is being released to the, the ongoing talks of whether to publish or not are up front and center. And the public is aware of what's going on.
2: It's just sad that, but their editor wanted to call it the Unabomber Manifesto.
1: Well, the, the thing here is, though, now we have an issue of the author of the Industrial Society and its future, They're going, well, this was kind of a good game plan by the author, in my opinion, because you have two, quote unquote, respectable, two respectable publications publications, and one that's not respectable. And he or the author, whomever it was, or this group or what have you, they want this manifesto to be printed in an upstanding publication. The New York Times, the Washington Post or both. But it's kind of cool that they leverage this against those two by sending it to someone who was probably just willing to print it to sell papers, sell magazines. And so when you see that this debate is going on in front of the American public, now you you have the author or authors come forward and say, okay, look, we agreed that we would stop our terrorism. We would stop the bombings if this was printed. However, if it's not printed in the two newspapers or one of the two newspapers, and it's only printed in penthouse magazine Mm -hmm. because it's not an upstanding publication, well, we reserve the right to send one more deadly bomb, one more deadly attack, and then it can be posted in the penthouse magazine and we will stop our terrorism then, our acts of terrorism then.
2: What they realized with the three different publications was we should we should print this in the Washington Post because it's going to be easier for us to monitor. Uh, it, had, it had a less of a footprint as far as where the Washington Post was received by readers.
1: Right. When you say they, you mean the FBI. The FBI has to put some strategy, some strategy into yeah. this idea of do we post or not?
2: Well, because they know that once they post it, that this individual is going to want to read this. And so they figured, well, maybe we could catch him that way by wanting to read his work in the paper.
1: Right. So what you have is a double pronged attack. The authors, the this group FC Freedom Club, they picked these three publications. Well, the New York times is well distributed everywhere across the entire country. The Washington post it's distributed across the entire country, but there's fewer outlets to purchase and pick up the actual paper. Penthouse magazine, I would assume is distributed across the country, but again, fewer outlets to pick up the magazine. And you're exactly right. Captain, they determined that in San Francisco, in the greater San Francisco area where we think this guy is, uh, living there was only i believe one place that you could purchase the washington post in that greater san francisco area so they're like cool on the day we will agree to print this manifesto but we're it's like the delphi press release the delphi press conference that we saw a couple years back where they made the announcement in advance This is when we are doing this, trying to draw the killer, trying to draw the attention from the killer to that location on that specific day. So now we're going to announce, yes, we will print it. It will be printed in the Washington Post only, and it will be printed on September 19th, 1995. So author, F.C., you now know when you should be ready to go purchase and pick up your newspaper. They're going to monitor that location in San Francisco with the idea of photographing and questioning every individual that buys a copy at that newsstand or what have you on September 19th, 1995. It's a two-pronged approach to their investigation to draw out the killer One, either he does show up in the San Francisco area and purchase a Washington Post newspaper on said day, and they lure him out that way, or B, they print the manifesto. Somebody that knows FC can identify them by their words and by their writing can contact the FBI and say, I think I know who you're looking for.
2: Right, and I also think there's some identifiers in there that the FBI saw.
1: Right, and you would have that in really any type of writing, especially something that's 35,000 words. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to sift through there. There's a lot to consider, but not just the identifiers that you're pointing out here, but it's also the ideals. Yes. I mean, this is that's what this... Manuscript is it's it's a a list of ideals of how this person believes that the future is going to be affected by the industrial revolution and, and, and everything going on with technology and nature versus technology and so on and so forth that someone will probably at some point recognize the mission of FC or Freedom Club and understand that because again we go back to yesterday's trailer. When we talk about the psychological makeup of this individual.
2: You're really patting yourself on the back about that that uh, trailer, aren't you?
1: Well, if he's anything like the Mad Bomber, what Dr. Bressel determined was that this would be a grudge holder. That this person would have certain de- delusions and would have certain ideas that they might be able to act normal and set those aside until it comes up somewhere in conversation or until they bring it up somewhere in conversation and this their ideas would be discussed with others.
2: And also with this manifesto, I mean, right away, to me, it's like th- this person has a higher level of intelligence. Um, he's speaking of ideas. Uh, one of the great Eleanor Roosevelt quotes is, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events and small minds discuss people. And he's not essentially doing that in this manifesto. He is presenting these ideas uh, and these problems that he sees facing the whole of society, but not blaming individuals.
1: I'm, I respect your opinion, but I'm going to have to disagree. He's not talking about individuals specifically, but he kind of, lumps people together and categorizes people as certain things and references them in that manner and he does reference events as well to kind of back up his claims or his beliefs
2: yeah but I also think some of one you can see his intelligence Two, there's a lot of futuristic predictions I think now, a lot of stuff that is being talked about now and so that's why I think people are going to hey, wait maybe this guy wasn't a complete madman uh even comparing this manifesto to you know nineteen eighty four, George Orwell's nineteen eighty four. Maybe lump people into very standard groups, but he's not going after one individual or multiple individuals and saying all this is their fault.
1: That's correct. Um anybody I I don't know if you've read it or not, Captain, but uh again I, I have a bit of a different take probably on this than some people that I've seen give their opinions on.
2: Well, there's there's also two versions because he updated it. So there, I think there's one that's like 126 pages and then one that's le- less than that.
1: Yeah, so I'm just going off of the one that was printed in the paper on September 19th, 1995 when he's making the threats. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's, you can obviously tell that it was written by an intelligent individual or a group of individuals and it's, but at the end of the day, to me, it looks like the ramblings of an angry young man. Um, I, I didn't find anything particularly brilliant about the, the thoughts of the future of society or lack of freedoms that us as individuals may have in that society I mean, it's nothing, there's no predictions or thoughts in there that would be any more brilliant than George Lucas's Star Wars or stuff that we've seen in sci-fi books, comic books, and TV throughout the decades.
2: Right, but I think think that's lessening these ideas. I mean, maybe he just came out with these ideas in 1995, but he's talking about, the way he thinks society is going to work with artificial intelligence and that stuff. That's we're just now talking about in the public uh, atmosphere, like in the last five years. And so, yeah, I mean, but I think the work of uh, George Lucas and, and the creators of like Star Trek and the things that they were able to think of how they thought the future would go. Those were genius ideas. And so if you compare them to that, I think you'd have to say some of these thoughts are genius level ideas.
1: Agreed. Agreed. As said, I believe it's obvious that the, uh, the, there's some intelligence there from the author. I just don't find it to be anything super unique. He's not the only one thinking of some of these ideas. Now, what this does do though, is it does have the desired effect because we start getting a lot of people coming forward saying, oh, I know somebody that talks like this. I know somebody that, that has said similar ideas. I know someone that writes like this, so on and so forth. What we end up having, Captain, is a husband and wife will eventually come forward, and this will be David Kaczynski and Linda Patrick. And the way that this goes down is Linda Patrick Decides she is going to read this manifesto, knows that it's going to be published, decides that she is going to read it. She reads it and she informs her husband, David. She says, this sounds to me a lot like your brother. while your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Colonel. And cheers to everybody for the, the nice uh, birthday wishes yesterday. I appreciate it.
1: And cheers to the people in the back. All right. We brought up David Kaczynski and his wife, Linda Patrick. The way this comes about here is Linda Patrick tells David, I think that this author of this manifesto could be your brother. It sounds a lot like how your brother writes. This is really interesting because Linda Patrick had never technically met David's brother,
2: Ted. Right. He just would write them quite often
1: he would write them some nasty letters. And a lot of the letters are about David now being married to Linda and how much Ted does not like Linda and how much Linda has changed his brother, David and changed. He never met her for the worse. That's right.
2: That's hilarious.
1: Yeah. Well, he's the ultimate grudge holder. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Linda, it does take some convincing to her husband, David, that the writings are similar. And in fact, David ends up finding an essay that Ted had written years before that actually is listing out a lot of these same ideas that are presented in the, what is dubbed by the FBI, the Unabomber manifesto. Eventually David is convinced that his brother should be looked at. He's concerned because you have things like Ruby Ridge that went down where the FBI surrounded a home and, they had guns inside a gun, a gunfight breaks out and we now have people dead as a result of Ruby Ridge. He was worried the same thing could happen with his brother. His brother's living out in the middle of nowhere in Lincoln, Montana and a tiny little cabin and he's got guns in his little cabin
2: it got really annoying after like the fifth or sixth person as I'm researching this case said little log cabin. This is not a log cabin. This looks more like a shed.
1: Yeah.
2: And there's no running water and there's no, I believe there's no electricity as well.
1: No, he's shitting in the floor inside Mm. this cabin.
2: Well, well, uh, to put it as bluntly as possible. He gave me some warning. I'm trying to finish my sandwich.
1: He could have bothered to build an outhouse at some point. Maybe he did and decided to to move it inward. I don't know. But anyway.
2: It was too cold. (laughs) It was too, the, his shit was freezing, so he had to shit inside.
1: But see, David is—he's at like a crossroads, man, because he's got to decide: Do I suggest that my brother could be? He's not one hundred percent convinced, right, that Ted is in fact the Unabomber, the most wanted serial killer in the country at the time. He's not one hundred percent convinced. Does he make this suggestion to the FBI or? Look, if, if he's wrong and Ted is innocent and uh, some type of gunfight breaks out, Ted could end up losing his life. Mm-hmm. Or if Linda is right, his brother Ted could send out another bomb and kill somebody. Even though he said, hey, I'll stop if you print this. You can never take a, a threat at its word, especially from terrorists.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting here is that they can... They contact a lawyer and they end up contacting a linguist to basically go over what they think they are seeing. And both the lawyer and the linguist confirm it and say, no, look, we think this is the same individual and we need to go to FBI with this.
1: Eventually, and it doesn't happen overnight, Captain. Again, a lot of debate, a lot of things going on behind the scenes here, but eventually the FBI does become convinced that Ted Kaczynski is, in fact, the guy. The problem that they have with Ted Kaczynski being prime suspect, being the perpetrator, is that it actually goes against a lot of the stuff that they collected against the Unabomber. He doesn't live anywhere near San Francisco. Right. The guy doesn't even own a vehicle.
2: He's shitting in his house.
1: The other thing, too, is he doesn't fit the profile. He's a little older than the profiles would suggest. I do want to throw this out there. There were dozens of profiles put together about the Unabomber, including John Douglas, that were not, uh, at at the end of the day, didn't turn out to be great profiles. But also, the physical description that was given by the witness that saw the man placing the package in the the parking lot had the age wrong had the hair color wrong. So there's a lot of reasons to look at this guy and go, I see what you're saying, that the language is similar, but are we going to go and get this guy simply based off of language and no physical evidence at all, zero physical evidence, so much so that it looks difficult that this guy could be our guy?
2: Yeah, but what they do now, because, because they have a name, is they can then go, well, what is Ted Kaczynski's past? and where how did he get to this point where he was living in this cabin isolated all alone
1: and they're going to start to see reasons that will tie someone like Ted to a lot of these attacks first off he has a history his childhood he lived in the he lived in the Illinois in the state of Illinois right more specifically around Chicago we know that one At least one or two of the attacks were Chicago-based attacks. At the age of 16, Ted enters Harvard University. He graduates from Harvard in 1962. He is accepted to the University of Michigan for a graduate program to study mathematics.
2: Well, I mean, let's not glaze over the fact that he was in a three-year long experimental psychological experiment. <laughs> experimental um, study at Harvard when he was 16.
1: Right. Not trying to glaze over that, just pointing out what they will look at with his past that's known to them by knowing his name and how it connects to some of these attacks. So we do know that
2: uh, University of Michigan was one of the targets. What they're learning here is, look, this this guy is smart at one point tests a IQ of like 167 or something like that. So he's capable of making these bombs. And then he goes, like you said, to Michigan and then also then goes to uh, Berkeley, California. So now we have connection to Berkeley, California as well.
1: Yes. In um 1967 is when he moves from the University of Michigan out to University of California, Berkeley. There he will be a teacher. He's going to teach math at Berkeley and then in 1969 he resigns from the math department at Berkeley
2: yeah he, he moves back home with his parents for about two years but during that time period him his brother and I, I believe his uh, father as well um, they all help him build this shack in Montana
1: yeah it was 1971 when he purchased 1.4 acres in South Lincoln Montana and he and his brother start to build this cabin. But at the same time, Captain, in 1971, Ted completes an untitled essay on the evils of technology. This will be again, similar to that of the
2: industrial society in his future.
1: Once the FBI is convinced that this could be their guy, that this should be their number one suspect, you got to look at him and clear him before you can move on. They decide to start surveillance on Ted and his cabin in Lincoln, Montana. Shortly afterwards, Captain Theodore John Kaczynski was arrested by the FBI in April of 1996. He's arrested at his cabin in Montana. And of course, he is accused of killing three people and injuring over 20 people in 16 separate bombings between the years of 1978 and 1995.
2: I mean, yeah, this is some of the biggest news, uh, the capturing of the unit bomber in 1996, some of the biggest news of 1996. You also have princess Diana and Charles getting a divorce. You have mad cow disease in the UK. And then obviously you have John Ramsay's Ramsey's killing later on in that year.
1: And as you pointed out earlier, captain, one of the issues they had with Ted was they had 2,000, they being the FBI, had 2,000 suspects in this case, and Ted Kaczynski was not listed in that top 2,000.
2: You have to applaud his brother and his sister-in-law for coming forward and saying, hey, um, because, yeah, maybe your brother's writing you some strange letters here and there, but he's not hurting anybody, and Ted had no history of violence that his family knew of and and actually the opposite. One of the things, you know, Ted had uh, severe hives when he was a kid Mm -hmm. and he was isolated in, in the hospital when he was younger before his little brother was even born. But one of the things that his mother said was he always had a, the way he treated animals, especially animals that were in cage, he had a real empathy for them which you normally don't see. I mean, you hear a lot of times with like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and things like that, cruelty to animals Mm -hmm. at a young age, and he had the opposite of
1: that. Well, he may not have had these deadly desires until later on in his life, and probably, I think he probably had some of this before that experimental stuff that was going on at Harvard, but I think that really pushed it further along. It certainly didn't help the young man.
2: I'm going to argue with you because there, there's no sign of that. And he was avid with journaling. And I don't think there's any record of him having any homicidal thoughts until he got to Michigan, which would have been years after the experiment. And he, And he says three-year-long experiment, which was done by Henry Murray at Harvard, that it was the worst experience of his life, but he doesn't think that the experiment changed the outcome of Ted Kaczynski's life or not.
1: Right. I don't think that it did. I think he's absolutely right in saying that I'm saying, I don't think it helped
2: if if he was having any kind
1: of issues or problems before that, this certainly would not have helped this young man. And many people have pointed out that, look, there were other people that were subjected to the same experiment and they didn't go on to blow people up. They yeah, didn't but they go on to become sixteen years old. Ser- that and that's what I'm pointing out. That's different set of circumstances here. He, he's younger on on all on every level imaginable, emotional, intellectually, and developmentally, you know, it, and, and so on.
2: I mean, look. I mean, he just to go over his history a little bit. You know, he scores high on this IQ test. They skip him one grade couple uh, grades go by then they end up skipping him another grade uh, he did some summer classes so then that's how he got to Harvard at the age of 16 but your your family lives in Chicago and they're sending you across halfway across the United States to go live by yourself and he just wasn't ready but again there's no record of any homicidal thoughts or even I believe suicidal thoughts until after the experiment. To me, that is proof. I mean, one of the things that you hear constantly when you're looking up Ted Kaczynski is that, uh, you know, Harvard isn't responsible for any of these actions and none of these deaths should be at a place at Harvard's door. And I I argue completely against that. I mean, a, a year after these experiments, he is in Michigan talking to therapists about homicidal thoughts. I think it's a direct correlation and, and again if if you had any evidence of it beforehand, then I would say maybe it didn't change the outcome of this kid's life, but i, I think the this experiment was um, you know and again it's also stated like as fact at, that this experiment was like MK ultra, and that's not true we We don't know f- for certain what this everything that took place with inside this experiment. So Ted himself is saying that it didn't affect him or he doesn't think it affected him. I think it did affect him. And also what he's getting wise to is how much information they have against him, but how all that information is connected to the cabin. So now his thought is if I can get you know, the information from the cabin thrown out, then I could walk out of here. scot free.
1: Yeah. He doesn't really get them to, he doesn't trick them into presenting the evidence to him. They make the mistake of presenting the evidence to him because they want to get a confession from Ted Kaczynski because they do not have that great of a case against this guy. So they're really hoping to get him to sign on the dotted line and confess to all of these attacks and the murders and you're well, I mean, right though. He yeah, very what quickly, do you mean pu- they
2: don't have a good case against him because they have thousands of pieces of evidence against him.
1: Then why are they going after a confession? I understand that they, they had lots of evidence against the guy. They wanted a confession from Ted
2: Kaczynski. Well, because there was no direct evidence to anything like the actual bombs or anything. There was no fingerprints on those bombs. And so all they had was these these diagrams and these, these notes. But the, what I'm saying is they had thousands of pieces of those.
1: Correct. But he very quickly realizes during the interrogation process that they are presenting their evidence to him. And, yes, he's going to flip it and use it against them and tell them, you know, you based your search warrant off of linguistics that is – That's just a word. That's just a term that you kind of made up. This is not something that has been used in previous search warrants.
2: Yeah, it's like a pseudoscience.
1: Right. So if you're going to use that, if I can get this search warrant tossed out, then that evidence that you collected from my cabin, from my shed, will be tossed out as well. And then you have nothing.
2: Yeah, and I think also some of this is, Maybe not so much that he goes free. I'm sure he doesn't want to be caught or be put in prison. But I also wonder how much of this uh, attitude that he has about this is trying to protect his belongings and his life work for the last several years.
1: Yeah, well, some of that is built into this because the natural defense here would be an insanity plea or an insanity defense. Right. And the problem with that is, well, if he avoids the death penalty and says, hey, I'm insane, and that's my defense that we put together, well, then what did any of this stand for? It was supposed to be built around this whole mission, this whole agenda of him and the Freedom Club. Mm -hmm. Well, what does this mission even mean if the man who put it together and orchestrated everything is an insane person?
2: Well, normally when we have these ramblings that – we see from these killers later, that's what they are. They're unintelligible ramblings or, or rants or, or however you want to look at it. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that you should read this manifesto and agree with them, but I, but I think what he is what he is saying is is also a little little unique and the reason why is because most people say, look, technology is happening. And you either have to jump on board or you don't. And he's making he's making the statement, hey, technology will happen, but only if we allow it. And maybe we need to pick and choose what we allow as far as technology goes. And so to your point, I think Ted Kaczynski is really worried. The easy way out is go, hey, I was insane. But then this manifesto that I worked on for years, people just dismiss it as the ramblings of somebody that's insane and they're not even going to take the time to read it
1: yeah i would think that that was his one of his many concerns my my own personal opinion of his manifesto of that manuscript is it it sounds like the you said unintellectual ramblings of a of a raving madman this is the intellectual ramblings of a madman it's
2: yeah, I think that's a good way to put it.
1: it it's, there's certainly some brilliance there. Again, you can tell it was written by an intelligent entity. Maybe I'm a little askew in my thoughts and in, in, uh, comprehension and perception of the document itself because I know who wrote it. Where if you were looking at it blindly, not knowing who or what group wrote it, maybe you would think of it a little differently. But Uh, One thing that I think kind of torqued me off a lot when researching this case was these morons online praising Ted Kaczynski for this manuscript and saying how brilliant the man is and how brilliant the manuscript is. And even to the point of people going, you you guys are just ignorant. You can't see it. One day you'll realize he was right. Mm Mm-hmm. He was right. Are you freaking kidding me?
2: Well, no, he's not. Again, I think a lot of those individuals have to start the conversation with forget every action that he did, and then just look at this paper as a whole. I think the um, the paper
1: as a whole degrades most of us as human beings. It's it, that's what I question. How many of these people posting their thoughts and opinions in a in approval and appraisal of this document actually bothered to read it.
2: Yeah, but it degrades
1: African-American people. It spends a good majority of the document talking about the over sociable people, the, the left people. It's grouping a whole bunch of batch of people together and then criticizing them. And what in the end are we losing? Ted, we're losing our freedoms. What are our freedoms? When you look at it, we all are slaves to something at the very core of our essence and our being. We all have to eat. We all have to pay taxes. These things that you might perceive us to be slaves of in the future, yes, I get that that's a threat. But freedom really is, of course, it's a physical thing, but it's also, it's also a state of mind. My, my version of freedom might not be the same as Ted Kaczynski's.
2: No, I understand that, but I, that it's a lot easier for us as Americans to sit there and say that we are free. Um, and and you look at what's going on in China with like the Muslims and, and then basically in internment camps over there and ask them how free they are and how free that society is. So
1: but he's attacking my society, and he's condemning my society. That's where I have a problem. You know what, Ted? I want the freedom to open up my mail without my hands being blown off.
2: No, I understand that, but I I, I think what they're... I think sometimes when these authors are, are saying, look, these are threats, and these are things that the that society needs to wake up to. And I think there's... Look, there's a lot of times... We were talking the other day. I watched the Jake Paul fight. It it was some of the lowest form of in- entertainment that I've seen in my whole lifetime. It was is almost embarrassing. And then you start wondering: Is this the way society is going? And 1.5 million views, one point five million views—one of the highest pay per view buy ins for any boxing event. And and so I think he—I think he's questioning society as a whole and and why are people spending so much time on their computer or spending so much time in front of their TVs when there's maybe more important stuff to be thinking about if that makes any sense
1: no it makes a lot of sense I think what I what I see here captain is it looks to me like somebody who did he he did in fact have these ideas he did in fact have these concerns but he used them as Almost a rationalization for what it probably was that he ultimately wanted to do. He wanted to punish the society that didn't accept him. He wanted to harm those who did not accept him. He could well, not. Well, ha- hold
2: on. And, and here's the problem, too, is society did not reject him. He actually rejected society. Correct. Correct. I would argue, on in your defense, I would argue the people that are looking at this manifesto and saying, you have to forget about the murders. Well, you shouldn't. You can't. And and that's not that's that's not part of the equation. You know, Ted Kaczynski likes math. Part of the equation is that, in order to get heard, you decided to attack other people's freedoms. So, in a sense, you're a hypocrite. On top of that, you didn't write this letter. You used technology. You used a typewriter. It might be a. Uh, a small form of a, of type of technology, but, but it was tech
1: at the time.
2: It was tech at the time. And you bought a little more than an acre. And then you started seeing real estate being developed. And, and you, you came up with this the again to attack innocent people that did nothing to you. I, I I'd feel totally different about Ted Kaczynski if he attacked Henry Murray that experimented on him for three years but what happened to the kid that had empathy for the caged animals Mm -hmm. what happened to that guy
1: well and he chose terrorism to as a platform for his message to teach the rest of us to educate the rest of us he was a freaking teacher at a university at a well-respected university two of them he he had a platform yeah. He had a platform where he could teach everyone. And you know what? It makes me think of when, when he was an active teacher and all these other teachers out there and then compare, compare that to the crazy man living in a cabin out in the middle of Montana. Mm-hmm. It's like Martin Luther King Jr. And James Earl Ray, mm-hmm. you had two guys that had two completely different sets of ideals they chose completely different methods in the way to deliver and express their thoughts and concerns
2: to the public. Yeah, and uh, but but here's where uh, here's where I feel bad for Ted Kaczynski is because I think a lot of times we start questioning with Ted Bundy with I mean look I mean it's you know it's 420 uh, Columbine. Adolf Hitler, who you start questioning, the chicken or the egg? Are these people just born evil, or were they created to be evil? And this is one case that I could say, I lean towards the idea that Ted was created to be evil. Like, maybe they didn't know that that was going to be the side effect of the experiment, but I think that was the outcome of the experiment. And that angers me. Because, one, I mean, $50 million spent by the FBI, $50 million of our our taxpayer money spent to try to catch this psycho. How much money have we spent on his uh, trials and his appeals and, and his incarceration and his communication with the outside world? How much have we spent on this guy and 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 he might have been created by experiments at Harvard.
1: And one thing that's really interesting too here, Captain, is you have the Kaczynski family, his mother and his brother, who said, yeah, at some point in his, you know, when he's 16, 17, 18 years old, we started to realize that there was something wrong with Ted. However, we didn't fully understand what it was. We kind of just chalked it up to, oh, he's an oddball, he's depressed, he's a genius, we can't really understand him.
2: Yeah, some people said that Ted was like a walking computer, that that some people didn't even view him as human.
1: Well, he would say things that were very uncomfortable to the people that were actually somewhat close to him, as close as anybody could be to Ted Kaczynski, a man with mm. very few friends, if any at all. But you know, his brother and his mother said that he would say things that you could tell were... These were suicidal expressions, homicidal type of expressions. And ultimately, the Nathan R. lead that the FBI was looking for, they never identified a Nathan R. tied to Ted Kaczynski or any other real aspect of the Unabomber case itself. In fact, there's two beliefs here of where that came from. Either that Ted Kaczynski himself did that on purpose to throw them off, or that it was simply something that happened in transit before the letter got to the FBI, that somebody else wrote a note over top of this letter. So that lead really never led to anything. In the end, Captain, at trial, there was a lot of weird and difficulties with his trial itself. And I don't want to go too far into it because it's it looked to me like the court system basically wanted to say, you're crazy, but not crazy enough um it seemed a little weird on the whole insanity idea and of course as we already pointed out ted originally did not want he was insistent that he was not insane that what he stood for meant something what what his actions were stood for something
2: yeah and i don't know how heavily involved his brother was but i i do know that there was talks with the fbi and his brother's lawyer about what would happen to Ted so I, I, I want to I wonder how much he uh, helped steer the narrative even during the trial.
1: well what he what happened was Ted was trying to dismiss his attorneys very late in the court proceedings and the the uh, judge was pretty much like, no, you're not going to dismiss your attorneys this late. We've been dealing with this forever. Right, and if we throw the, them out now, you get a chance to start over your whole defense, which could take a year or two. We're dealing with this now. You cannot dismiss your attorneys, and so ultimately Ted Kaczynski ends up pleading, uh, giving the insanity plea to avoid the death penalty. So he ends up being he ends up receiving several life sentences to be served out at the ADX Florence which is a United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility. This is an American federal prison in Fremont County near Florence, Colorado. It is operated by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So this is different than regular prisons here, Captain. This is uh, a division of the United States Department of Justice operates this prison This prison opened up in 1994 and is classified as a supermax or a control unit prison. This meaning that it provides a higher, more controlled level of custody than even a maximum security prison. And if you look at the list of some of the other inmates that are serving their time there, as well as Ted Kaczynski, it's some of the biggest names out there. It's a lot of terrorists, to be honest with you. It's a lot of foreign terrorists and domestic terrorists that have been housed in there throughout the years, as well as people who have committed crimes of espionage.
2: Well, um, but at the end of the day, no, no matter how smart Ted Kaczynski is, I mean, that's what he is: is a American domestic terrorist.
1: In one of Ted's journal passages, dated sometime between the autumn of 1977 and early 1978, when the bombing campaign was just beginning, and Ted Kaczynski was still an amateur bomb builder. Remember, he's trying to become a better bomb maker, a more deadly attacker. He wrote to himself, quote, I emphasize that my motivation is personal revenge. I don't pretend any kind of philosophical or moralistic justification. My ambition is to kill a scientist, big businessman, government official, or the like. I would also like to kill a communist. Ted Kaczynski wrote in 1980 that the bombings made him feel less angry. Quote, since committing these crimes reported elsewhere in my notes, I feel better. I am still plenty angry. You have to understand the blank. Remember, these are coming from some coded journals. You have to understand the blank is that I am now able to blank to a degree. And when his bombings were not lethal. When they, were, when they did not kill or they did not significantly injure the individual who opened up the bomb, he said that they were not a success, that that bomb was a failure. He was hoping that every bomb would blow off hands or kill the person that opened up the package. The only way for his work to be, quote, successful, as Ted Kaczynski saw it, was to kill the person that opened up the package. In July of 1999, this is an interview article by David Bowman on Salon.com. The article is titled Profiler, and it's an interview with John Douglas. Bowman asked Douglas a follow-up to a follow-up question. Bowman was asking about psycho killers in general, and then asking, has there ever been this kind of killer that are a do-good killer? Angels of Justice, Dexter types. Specifically, have there been any environmentalist psycho killers who kill loggers or strip miners. And Douglas gives his answer. Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, thought he was doing that. But when I started analyzing the case, Douglas said, forget his hatred of technology. He don't give a shit. He just wants to kill. He enjoys killing and wants to dominate and control. There's the Oklahoma bombing that gets the front page. Two or three days later, we have a professor killed on the East Coast. That's Kaczynski saying, quote, I'm the big guy here. Who's this Oklahoma City bomber?
2: Thank you, friends, for joining us here back in the garage for another. Gripping, interesting story. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week?
1: This week we are recommending Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family by David Kaczynski. In August 1995, David Kaczynski's wife, Linda, asked him a very difficult question. Do you think your brother, Ted, is the Unabomber? He couldn't be, David thought. But as the couple poured over the Unabomber's 78-page manifesto, David couldn't rule out the possibility. It slowly became clear to them that Ted was likely responsible for mailing the 17 bombs that killed three people and injured many more. Wanting to prevent further violence, David made the agonizing decision to turn his brother in to the FBI. Make sure you check out Every Last Tie by David Kaczynski. You can find that title. And many more on our recommended page at TrueCrimeGarage.com.
2: And until next week, be good, be kind,
1: and don't litter.